0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians
2: are the world champions of 1948, and they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dearden is being mocked as our rule Boudreaux and out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in, arm in arm. it tap up in the air. Third base side waiting is Tommy. Foul territory. The game is over, and the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years, and now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone. You should see the celebration of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall, we are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland Since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian Jeremy Fedor. I mean, you just look at that whole lineup. It's just,
1: you know, ultimate leadoff hitter in Lofton, stealing 100 bags. And you got Omar Viscal, very underrated, could handle the bat, switch hitter, and sacrifice that bat for the team. Perfect two hole hitter. Another switch hitter, Baeger. You know, and then you just got down into the meat of the order. It was just like Murray, Bell, Tomey, Ramirez, you know, just like those guys, crazy lineup, you know. It just There was just no rest for the pitcher, no rest. One through nine, we made it real difficult on teams. There's just no rest in it.
0: Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome to this week's episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian Jeremy Fedor, and on this week's episode... We are throwing it back to the 1990s. Now when fans think of those 90s Indians, they often think of the big boppers like Tommy and Bell and Manny, as well as Lofton and Vizquel, and the list goes on of so many of those greats. But hidden in that shuffle of those early 90s clubs is first baseman Paul Sorrento. In 95, Sorrento smashed 25 home runs while batting in the bottom of a stacked lineup. Just one of those things that goes to show you how talented that 95 club really was. So let's jump into it. And uh, the Tribe acquired Serrano towards the tail end of the 92 spring training. It was actually almost over uh, when Reggie Jefferson hurt his left elbow. So swapping out two pitching prospects in Kurt Lascanic and Oscar Munoz. Now Laskanek went on to have a solid career in the majors, while Munoz appeared in 10 games in 1995. You you can judge for yourself, I guess. You never... uh, the career at Kurt had was, was pretty solid, but Sorrento did provide a lot of pop to that 95 Indians club. But Sorrento was playing sparingly on that 91 World Champ Twins team, but was always blocked from getting a look at, at full-time role because Kent Herbeck held that position down. And because of this, the Twins felt that they could deal Sorrento for prospects. When the trade went down, the Poinsies article in The Plain Dealer said Indians acquire a first baseman. The trade and the swiftness in which it was completed underline three things. The Indians are unsure when Jefferson will return to the major leagues. They do not want Brooke Jacoby to play first base while Jefferson recovered, and they are not sure rookie third baseman Jim Tomey will be ready for opening day because of a sprained ligament in his right wrist. If Tomey can't play, manager Mike Hargrove said he would rather have Sereno at first, Jacoby at third, instead of Jacoby at first and Jerry Brown at third. The Indians took a risk making the deal. Sereno, 26 at the time, is out of options. That means he would have gone through waivers if it didn't make the Twins' big league club. Now, since the Indians have the first shot at any American League player going through waivers because of their 105 losses last year, they could have taken a chance and claimed Sereno for the 20 grand waiver price instead of trading two prospects. General Manager John Hart said, but we weren't going to wait. We had indications that the Twins weren't going to put him on waivers. I don't know if that's true, but I didn't want to hesitate and wait on injuries, dates, and doctor reports. Our reports on him are excellent. He's a young first baseman who has shown a lot of power and limited number of at-bats in the big leagues. He fits the profile we are trying to do here. Now Montreal was also interested in Sereno, but for Hargrove, he said, this isn't a panic move. It's not something like we've got to do something quick because we're in trouble. It's a sound baseball move. And Sereno spent most of the time in Triple uh, A Portland, where he hit 308 with 13 home runs and 79 RBIs in 113 games, but was kind of knocked as an average defensive player. What happened next is one of those what if moments of baseball. Um, literally five hours after the trade happened, Twins first baseman. Ken Herbeck separated his left shoulder and was out for an indefinite period of time. So just like that, if the trade had happened, you know, uh, not in that, that small window, um, Sorrento would have stayed with the Twins. And who knows what who would have filled in at first for the Tribe.
1: I was out of options with the Twins. So I was either going to have to make their team for get sent down and you get sent through waivers or whatever, you know, happens. So I, um, it was probably, I want to say maybe three or four days left in camp, maybe a week. And, uh, called me in the office and the team was, you know, we were in Florida at the time. So the team was going to like St. Pete or something. So they, I wasn't playing. They called me in. I didn't go on the trip obviously because I got traded. Cause I would have, I went on every trip. (laughs) Um, So he called me in the office and it was Andy McPhail, told me I got traded and um, I said, okay. And then um, I went back to my apartment and was sitting there with a couple of my buddies that were in camp that didn't make the trip either. There were a couple of pictures and uh, sitting there and um, (laughs) it was funny, we were having a couple of beers. (laughs) like in the afternoon and we were just hanging out and we turned the game on and uh we saw her back hit like a ball in the gap and we saw him round in second and he slid into third and blew his shoulder out i was watching the game <laughs> my buddies looked at me and they're like oh my god did that just happen i was like, oh, weird i'm like can i still get traded or do i have to come back like how's that work that was my first question like i didn't know what was going to happen so it was kind of weird yeah got traded and then four or five hours later Herbeck blew his shoulder out so I mean if they had waited probably the afternoon it probably would never have happened you know it was kind of weird
0: and for Sereno it was just a nice change in scenery and in the Plain Dealer it said so in one day Sereno went from opening the season with the defending world champions to a team that led the majors with 105 losses last year Paul was quoted as saying how about that My timing was never there. See what I mean? I'm glad to be out there. I wasn't a big part of what the Twins accomplished last season. I know I was on the postseason roster, but I only had a couple of pinch pinching appearances. When they told me about the trade, I was excited. I couldn't wait to get here. I packed all my stuff in about 15 minutes. I think I'm ready to play every day in the big leagues. I've been talking about this for two years. Now we'll see. It's time to put up or shut up. So again, Paul was really excited to be in Cleveland.
1: You know, I had been kind of up and down for about three years with the twins and obviously with her back there he was pretty kind of entrenched there at first base so um, wasn't getting many at bats you so know get called up, get sent down get called up get sent down you know one of those things and so yeah you hit it right in the head for me it was I was I was excited I was gonna get an opportunity to play um, like you said didn't know anything really about the city or the stadium or anything or who was on the team. <laughs> didn't know any of that because, like, we didn't play them. Like, I didn't play against Cleveland very much. Uh, it Kind of coming up, it was weird. And so, but anyway, yeah, exactly right. It was just more of a great, I'm going to get an opportunity, get a chance to play. And I had no reservations about leaving whatsoever. It was fine.
0: And doing the research on Paul's career with the Indians, it's fascinating because he's a part of so many historic moments. And, uh, you know, for example, when he was traded to the Indians, he played in the last spring training game while the club was at High Corbett before they moved. When the Indians opened up their 1992 season, they were playing against Baltimore, was opening Camden Yards. So he was a part of the opening at Camden Yards. And, the record books he'll go down as the first player to record a hit in that game then the next game he becomes the first player to hit a home run at the the new ballpark and i have a video of it i'll, I'll tweet out for you but it looks at I me mean, he connects and it sends the ball to left center-ish and it looks like baltimore's brady anderson is going to snag the ball but he just misses it and uh, kind of spikes his glove after that and we have a paul's recollection of that home run
1: Oh, no, no way now. No, the story changes now. That was like 50 rows back, way back. That was a huge one. <laughs> no, it was like he said, it was like, I don't know how he missed it. I think he hit the wall when he jumped. And it was like in the first row, maybe second row of Camden. And we all know that's not very far left. That was cool. It was cool to be part of history you don't really realize it at the time, but now that I go back there now and stuff like that, you see stuff up in the stadium and stuff. It's pretty cool. So,
0: Paul's date with history continues on because when Cleveland returns home to Municipal Stadium for the home opener against the Boston Red Sox, he's part of a, another historic game as the tribe and Boston played 19 innings as the Headline in the Plain Dealer the next day read, A Boston Marathon, 65,813 watch as Tribe falls in 19 innings. And it's a six-hour and 30-minute game for opening day. And again, the next day there was a doubleheader. So uh, I found it funny, too, in the uh, the cheers and jeers section of the article, six-hour and 30-minute game, people start getting a, a little bored. But... Uh, the Indians gave out free calendars and a lot of uh, the court in the papers, knuckleheads, turned them into paper airplanes. Um, but again, that's kind of your, uh, your opening day at the old ball, ballpark you'd uh, attract, you know, 50, 60,000 And then by the next day you could hear crickets in the, uh, in the ballpark.
1: No, I, I, that's what I remember most about like the old stadium was this like opening day, and, like, the last series of the year was just – it was, like, a spectacle, man. It was, like, 65 70,000 people. And it was just like, whoa, it was, like, really cool. And then kind of during the season, it tapered off a little bit. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that was kind of a first experience. And it was, like – it's funny you say that because I always wondered, like, I wonder if you put those teams – like in the mid to kind of late 90s in that old stadium, what the kind of crowds you would have gotten. I think it would have been pretty cool with about sixty five, seventy thousand 70,000 people in there. It would have been nice. <laughs> but I remember most exactly. <laughs> it went from 65,000 people, 70 to maybe 10 after that. <laughs> yeah, it was like a it was like your high school or like Legion ball game. You could hear everything, it wasn't, because like we talked about before, it was a huge stadium and then we were coming off a year where we lost a hundred games, so it wasn't many people in the stands, so it was like, yeah, it was definitely legion-like or high school-like, didn't seem like there was anybody in the stands really, and you could hear everybody, yeah.
0: (laughs) And the history still wasn't done there yet, because the next day in the doubleheader, Game one, the Tribe won, except they were no hit by Boston. Kenny Lofton had gotten on and stolen a few bases and scored on a sack fly, and I have to look how they got the the other run. But they were no hit and won. And then the second game, Roger Clemens uh, gave up two hits, and they lost. So the Tribe split a a doubleheader with Boston while manufacturing two hits. So, again, I'm not sure how many times in in. Baseball history that has happened. Again, I have to go look it up. But um, with Sarmiento coming to the new team, he he kind of clicked with his teammates pretty quick. He mentioned that when he came over to the tribe, he was familiar with Albert because they played against each other in college. Sarmiento played for Florida State, and Albert being an LSU grad.
1: Yeah, the only guy the only guy I knew was Albert. Well, I played against Albert in college, but he was about the only one that was like a familiar face to me. But it was kind of a cool group because we're all kind of the same boat. You know, we're all kind of young in our young, early 20s, just traded from all the organizations, really getting a, you know, everybody was really getting their first chance to play and kind of prove themselves. So we're all kind of in the same boat. I think that's why we're all so – I think that's why we got along so good and why we're all so tight, you know. We're all coming up at the same time. We're all the same age about –
0: and Sorrento also noticed a difference in manager styles with his, between his Twins manager and Tribe manager, Mike Hargrove, as well.
1: Uh, a little more laid back. Um, kind of just let the players kind of play, you know what I mean? Kind of wrote the lineup up and was kind of in the background a little bit, like coming from Minnesota. TK was a little more intense. I think fundamentally wise, you maybe stress maybe fundamentals a little bit more. I think Grover was really good at just kind of letting his players go out and play, be themselves, kind of gave him that free reign. Kelly was more of a by-the-book guy.
0: If you've watched any of the documentaries on the 1990s Indians or read any of the books, I just finished Zach Meisel's uh, Cleveland Rocked. I'd recommend that if you're looking for a book on the 90, 95 Indians team. You know, the success of those clubs was largely due in part to the signing of the talent early and extending them before, you know, arbitration hit and before, uh, you know, guys had a chance to get away. And Sereno was no different. The Tribe locked up, Paul, in early 1993. Uh, The Plain Dealer said, Sereno didn't look down the road because he's already been there. He's 27, and with the exception of 67 games in Minnesota, he's seen nothing but minor leagues for six years before the Indians gave him a chance to be their first baseman last spring. So when the Indians offered Serrano a three-year deal worth 2.1 million, the total package is worth 3.6, including an option for 96. He didn't worry about the future of arbitration or free and free agency, or having the production exceed his income in the next couple of years. He just said yes. Some guys might not think that is a lot of money," said Serrano last week when he was signing the con, or signing was announced. But to me, and the way I was brought up, with my dad working two jobs and my mom working full time, it's a good chunk of money. It's what I wanted from the game. I have no regrets. I could hit 40 home, run, home runs this year and 50 home runs next year, but that's the way it goes. They've done so much for me that I felt maybe it was time for me to repay them, said Sorrento. I can give them a little security if an emergency comes up. And though the 1993 season on paper might not have looked like a success, the club finished 76 and 86. Things began to come together for the club. Serrano himself went on to have a solid year, playing in 148 games, recording 75 runs, 119 hits, and 18 home runs with 65
1: RBI. You could definitely sense it because the court, like the position players that they acquired, were like good young players. They just needed a chance to play, you know. And you kind of see it that year, to where we had like we had really good offensive players, good defensive players, couple couple of good arms. Charlie Nagy it was Charlie Nagy, you know. He was an all-star at the time. He was young, Had a couple other, you know, good like prospects or whatever. And you know that was when Tommy just came up, and that may have been ninety-three, maybe not ninety-two, but anyway, yeah, you saw it. You know, you saw the really good core core position players, and uh, you know, you saw like something good was going to happen if they just kind of kept everybody together and maybe added a couple pieces here and there you know
0: and for Sereno too it was a a chance to improve at first base when the tribe picked him up the one knock on him was that his defense wasn't great and in another article he was quoted as saying I played hockey from the time I was 8 or 9 through my junior year in high school said Sereno I was a goalie you know how that goes they just pick a kid stick and goal it happened to me Uh, He wanted to say, again, I feel really comfortable at the plate. I just want to be more consistent. Last year, I struggled the first couple of months, came on in the middle of the season and tapered off at the end of the year. Mentally, it wore on me. It was my first full season in the big leagues. Um, And again, I mentioned that Serenna only had 45 at-bats against left-handers. So again, he was trying to improve his hitting against left-handers. Hitting coach at the time, Jose Morales, said he's done a really good job against lefties. The only time he runs into problems is when he swings too hard against them.
1: You know, it's just that kind of mentality I took over there. You know, um, I, I think it probably helped me uh, maybe around the bag a little bit. Yeah, it was just kind of one of those things where at first you have the luxury of you don't really have to be the smoothest fielder. I mean, you knock it down, getting out. So I guess that was my mentality back in the day. I don't know, <laughs> goalie wise.
0: <laughs> and in the theme of being part of history, Sereno. Uh, Not only got to help open up Camden Yards, he also got to help close Cleveland Municipal Stadium as he was part of that 93 uh, team that closed out the ballpark with all the festivities and uh, uh, lots of fans, I'm sure, still remember everything that went on those days. But for Paul, again, he was a a new guy to the team, still relatively new, only in his second season. And before before he played with the Indians, when Paul was with the Twins, he never actually had that bad at Municipal Stadium. So his entire Municipal career was with the Indians. But again, the nostalgia wasn't necessarily there for uh, a guy from you know out out east that uh, didn't grow up with the uh, the stadium.
1: Uh, I mean, it was like you said. I kind of came over in '92, so it wasn't like really. Um, I wasn't entrenched in like that tradition or, you know what I mean? I mean, you learned about it, obviously, when you went there and you saw the Rocky Calvitos and those guys, which was really cool. But I just think it was just a, you just wanted to, you were just looking forward to something better. You were ready for it to be over with. I don't think it was more of like a, oh man, we're going to miss this place. I think it was more of excitement, looking forward to the, the new stadium because it's I mean, Municipal Stadium was probably, I don't know how long it had been there. Probably a while, right? 40s, maybe? 30s? 30s. When they built yeah. that, do you know? Yeah, 30s. Yeah. 30s. So, I mean, obviously it had a lot of history and a lot of great moments with the Browns and Indians, but for us players, like, we're all kind of young, so we're all kind of, we're ready to move on. You know what I mean? We're ready to move on.
0: I believe it's in Zach's book that he mentions how, The club would bring players over to Jacobs Field, now Progressive Field, to see construction and get an idea of what was coming up. And Paul remembers the the construction and and what was going on, trying to picture what the new field was
1: going to look like. Like you said, we kind of go over there and you kind of check it out. And It really wasn't much, though, when I went over there. I think there was just like a, I want to say, like a left field... Bleaches were kind of built and kind of right field, but really wasn't all that finished yet. So it was kind of cool to see it coming up and where it was at. And they were telling you the dimensions and you saw pictures of it and stuff. And it was, it did a really good, I mean, the Jake was beautiful ballpark. They did a really good job on it, man. It was awesome. Really nice. It was really cool to be part of that,
0: you know? With the new ballpark came a new teammate in Omar Vizquel and teaming up with Carlos Bayerga, Sereno had a lot of help on the infield and had to keep it on his toes with those two making incredible plays. Obviously, if uh, you have a shortstop of the caliber of Omar Vizquel, you think a ball's going to be knocked through the middle for a hit, and next thing you know, he's coming up with it and throwing to first. Um, and then he also had Lofton and, and Sandy continuing to play at high levels and, and Tommy coming around as well. Um, it was a, an exciting time for for the Tribe.
1: Yeah, Omar was unbelievable, but he was every time he'd come up and throw, you'd be we run to the bag and turn around, it was right at your chest. You know, same with Carlos, those guys were unbelievable up the middle and then you put Lofton in center and then Sandy behind the plate. That's like four really good players, man. That up the middle to where that's hard to duplicate. You know, those guys played really good, man. Especially Omar. He was ridiculous. He's the best shortstop I've ever seen. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, young Jim Tomey trying to make his way at third base Um, is before uh he became the the indians home run king and he had some some trouble throwing the ball to uh to first but eventually you know became a a solid third baseman until he transitioned to first base but i did want to know from paul seeing a, a young jim tomey develop if he had any idea that he was going to become one of the greatest home run hitters in baseball
1: I mean, like I see, you saw a lot of potential, like tremendous power, raw power. But, I mean, God, for what he went on and did, like 600. No, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't see 650 homers. (laughs) I saw a really good player who's going to have a good major league career, but, I mean, not 650 homers. I mean, it's unbelievable.
0: (laughs) And like Tommy. Paul worked hard with Charlie Manuel and not only did it improve his hitting during his playing career, but Paul still uses what Manuel taught him as his current role as the assistant hitting coach for the Angels. So, again, the impact that Charlie Manuel had on these early 90s clubs really can't be understated. And it still reverberates to today.
1: I took a lot from Charlie. I owe Charlie a lot, man. He uh, he helped me out. Uh, a part of my career that um, maybe understand some certain aspects of hitting, and um, I think I, I, I think the most that I loved about Charlie is that he loved his job, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a chore, or it wasn't a, it wasn't being a pain in the ass. When I said, "Hey, Charlie, you want to go hit?" You know, Charlie would be like, "Charlie would already be down there," like he wanted to hit all day. So I think his enthusiasm and positiveness like he was very positive guy like he 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 always was trying to pump you up and never talk about the negative and like I said that's just the work ethic and just what what he brought was just I him a lot I, I would say probably him and Lee Ilya probably the two most influential guys that I kind of use and you know when I'm in my profession now as a hitting coach you know I take a lot of traits that those guys taught me and Try to apply it to our players. um, But, yeah, I owe Charlie a lot. I appreciated the time he took and um, effort he put in to helping us be better hitters. He was awesome, man. Still talking today. He's a great guy, man. I miss him.
0: And when the club moved into a progressive field or Jacob's field, I had mentioned that they picked up Omar Vizquel, but also – Bolstered the lineup with a few more veterans, one of which was another first baseman, uh, Eddie Murray. Now, Murray's best days were were behind him, but he was a solid veteran uh, coming to la, the organization with a, a lot of young guys in it to help, you know, teach him how to uh, to win. And for Paul, it wasn't necessarily any sort of uh, th- competition at first in terms of taking his his role, but. It was actually something that was going to be very helpful and something that Paul was excited for.
1: We I mean, just adding another quality player to our lineup. I knew we were going to, you know, I was going to play. I was going to get enough at bats and probably going to be in the same role that I've always been in, kind of a play most of the time, not every day. Having Eddie uh, really changed our atmosphere and our clubhouse and just changed the dynamic of our team. I mean, obviously, when you add a Hall of Famer to your lineup, it's going to do good things. And Eddie was uh, Eddie was a great teammate. Solid influence in the clubhouse. He kept kept guys in line. He was awesome. Great guy. I, I, yeah. I mean, we're all excited to get Eddie. He's a really good player. So it was a great addition. Didn't affect me at all, though. I, was just, you know, I didn't look at it in a negative aspect at all.
0: And ringing in 94... Eddie had first base for the home opener at the ballpark, and Paul was still in awe of that that atmosphere, even though he wasn't playing. And again, adding to the random bits of Paul Sorrento history, he became the first pinch hitter at uh, the ballpark, so opening his second ballpark in his career and making history as well with left-hander Randy Johnson on the mound to Paul wasn't necessarily, I don't think, upset to be sitting on the bench for that game.
1: Randy Randy throwing 100 and sitting on the bench saying, man, I'm glad I'm not in this game. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know. It was just the the atmosphere. It was a beautiful sunny day. It was a brand-new ballpark beautiful ballpark Is just the excitement we had new uniform, you know new everything really you know opening day all of a sudden you get to face Randy who's one of the best that ever lived and.
0: and ultimately he was having a great season in 94 up until the strike he had compiled a 280 average with 14 home runs 90 hits and 62 RBI but you know again with the other what ifs of baseball what if that 94 season had finished where the try would have ended up and what Paul's numbers would have been but for the sake of time, I'm not going to, you know, we've touched on the 95 team, and I mentioned that there's so many resources out there that you can check out to, if you didn't live through, it, which um, I imagine many of you did. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, feel free to uh, check some of those out. I'm, I mean, again, I'll probably touch on more of the 90s players as we, we go along. But um, that 90s team it was just one of those, magical teams where they were never out of a game and they always seemed like someone was going to be the hero in the late innings.
1: No, I mean, someone told me or someone read like we had 28 last at bat wins or something or 14 in extra innings, 28 over. It's like, you know, that's like crazy. (laughs) You don't see that like ever. You may not see that ever again. As players, we knew that team was really good. We knew that um, if our pitchers kept us in ball games that we were going to win a lot of games because our offense was just stupid, you know, and our pitchers did even more than that. Our pitchers like threw really good, like we had really good pitching too. So when you combine the two, you know, we didn't care what the score was. We knew eventually we were going to, you know, we were going to have chances to win and like, you know, and it just kept, I, I guess it just kept snowballing to where towards the end really towards the end of the year we didn't I didn't feel like we'd get beat like uh, you know we just had such a good team like that year we clinched in like August and you know we just had guys had stupid numbers I mean, we were just putting up offensive numbers and our pitching was dominating like we just knew you know until the final out was made that we were going to be in the game no matter what you know and that's kind of the attitude we had and seemed to play out that way too it's crazy but I wouldn't think I wouldn't have thought of that. You know, you are got to have some luck, obviously, involved. And, you know, crazy, but it's a lot of comeback
0: wins. For Paul, it was June 4th, 1995. Down 8 nothing, going to the bottom of the third inning. It looked like all was lost. The Tribe, though, responded with one run in the third, two in the fourth, two in the fifth, and one in the sixth, going to the ninth, down 8-6. to six. And Carl Spierer opened up the inning with a bunt ground out. But Albert and Eddie Murray... Both singled, and with Espinoza running for Murray, Tommy hit into a force at second that scored Bell, uh, thus leading Paul coming up with his chance to be the hero. Paul's recollection of that home run is a,
1: a bit comical as well. So here's that. Cause it's kind of a windy day and we were getting, we got killed early. I think they maybe scored eight, nine runs, like in the first inning, maybe. And then all of a sudden we came back and I remember the, the reason why I remember that home run is because um, the real windy day that day, I ended up, I ended up hitting that ball really good. I killed that ball and I ended up kind of, I wouldn't say pimping it, but I kind of showboyed a little bit to where I, you know, thought it was out like way out because I killed it and I started running and that ball ended up being maybe two, three rows, <laughs> like in the stand. So I think that's what I remember most about it. It was like, I knew I hit it. And then as I was running, I was like, oh my God, please go out. I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> So pretty cool. But yeah, as another way, you know, and-
0: toward the end of August, Sereno ended up on the DL for a little bit, but he did manage to find his way back into the lineup on September 8th when the tribe beat Baltimore to clinch the first playoff appearance since 1954. However, according to Paul, this was strictly coincidence. I had asked him if there was any sort of a, you know, motivation to get back onto the field. I'm sure he, he wanted to, but. Again, the stars just happened to align for Soreno. But with that '95 season ended with the loss to Atlanta, uh, for Paul there was an option for 1996. However, the tribe had Herbert Perry waiting in the wings. Uh, Perry was the second round pick in 1991's draft, so you know he, Paul kind of knew what was uh, you know life of any baseball player. There's never necessarily a guaranteed thing, so. Um, he he was aware of the situation.
1: I th- I kind of sensed it, I think, towards the end. Um, I think QB I started playing. I didn't, he didn't start playing, but he was their young kind of prospect, up and coming. But as a player, you don't really think about that. You just kind of go out and play. You don't really think about contract or anything like that. And, you know, just going to try to be out, go out and be productive. and yeah, but that year I think I had an option. They declined my option for that following year after the season. So, yeah, I mean, there's always there's always that young, always that young guy. You always that next player coming up. So you're always having to prove yourself. that it wasn't. I think Herbert kind of helped us that year. He kind of came in and played some defense, and he could run a little bit too. So he could pinch run. He's a pretty good all around player.
0: Serrano's option was declined, again, following that 95 season. He ended up catching out with Seattle in 1996, and in 1997, he hit a career high in home runs with 35. He then finished his career in Tampa with the Rays, playing in the 1998-1999 season, and now he currently uh, works with the uh, the Angels. So he's still in baseball, and that, again, is the, the cliff note version of Paul Serrano's time with the the Cleveland Indians, a lot of the, the highlights um, in there, and one and I tweeted it out when I was teasing the episode. One other uh, piece of historical trivia or, or coincidental trivia is that Paul was playing in three games where a player got his three thousandth hit. Then the uh, Robin Yount being the first one when they played against uh, when played against Robin, and then he was in the lineup when Eddie Murray had his 3000th hit. And then when he was with Tampa, when Wade Boggs had his, and actually he was in the dugout for Albert Pujols when he had his 3000th hit. So, you know, some guys play their entire career and never get a chance to uh, see a 3000th hit. But for Paul, he was, you know, just in the right place at the right time.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, obviously that's huge history. Yount was obviously a little different, you know, because he was on the other team. But that was really cool because I was a young player back then, you know. I kind of looked up to Yount, know, obviously, growing up, you know, watching him play growing up. And then um, obviously being teammates with the two other guys was, was awesome. It's really cool. Uh, Boggs was just really cool because he was at home and he hit a homer. And then uh, I want to say Eddie did it on the road. did it in Minnesota, I think, I want to say. That sounds right, but yeah, it would have yeah. been. I would have liked to see. I would have liked to see him do it in Cleveland, maybe you know, just to kind of or maybe Baltimore, one of those cities. But yeah, it's kind of cool to be part of history like that, and just be, you know, you look back now, back then you didn't, but now it's kind of look, but cool to look back on your career and part of things. I didn't know that about the three thousand hits. That's pretty cool.
0: A real quick shout out to Bart Swain for setting this interview up and Jim Rosenhaus for adding the intro and outro for me. Um, Really appreciate it. Thank you guys for that. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive.
2: You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.